Hi there, and welcome to the Government Transformation Show, the podcast of public sector change makers. I'm Dami, the content marketing lead at Government Transformation Magazine. In today's episode of the Government Transformation Show, I sit down with Paul Wilson, head of digital service design at Maztech. Paul has over 20 years of experience working with large scale systems in various roles, including service design, strategy, architecture, product management, government, and more. Maztech specializes in assisting public sector organizations to map out and simplify their digital transformation journeys. Paul will join us at the Government Transformation Summit this September to co-host the Using Design Thinking for Successful Digital Transformation Roundtable. Paul will be joined by Justina Oloska, Prime Minister's High Representative for Government Thinking Journey and the benefits of implementing this way of working into your organization. Let's jump in now. Hi Paul, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess, first of all, thank you very much for the invite. Uh, really excited to uh, to do this. It's my first ever podcast, so fingers crossed this all goes okay. So a bit about me. Let's rewind back to the early to mid-80s. So I was one of those sort of geeky kids that spent their Saturday afternoons in WH Smiths, where they used to have a ZX81. And I basically learned to program in WH Smiths on a Saturday afternoon. Um, which was a bit, a bit of a geeky thing to do. Um, and then at school, I, you know, the legendary BBCB computer that cemented my interest in, in IT. Uh, and actually did an A-level in computing back in, in the late 80s, which was really rare back in those days. But that set me up, I guess, to do my first degree, which is in computing. So uh, once I graduated from there, I've worked in telecoms, in banking and in healthcare in a variety of different roles. Started off as a developer, then moved into product management, governance uh, and solutions architecture. But in the mid 2010s, I went on a design thinking boot camp and I had a bit of an epiphany during that boot camp. And that boot camp um, was a Monday to Friday thing. And on the Monday, we were given a challenge. And that challenge was to consider how we could smooth uh, referral from a GP to first consultation in secondary care. And within two hours, we were actually down in a major hospital in London interviewing clinicians and patients. And that went on all week through the whole design thinking cycle until on the Friday, we actually uh, presented a solution to that problem. And that week, it basically changed my life. I, I completely pivoted my career and I moved into service design at that point, taking with me all the design um, tools. Uh, luckily, it was round about the time when GDS was really picking up and design thinking and service design was really picking up across government. So I managed to pivot into a new role within NHS Digital and went into uh, a number of different projects doing service design work. And then a few years after that, I decided that I needed to get some academic qualifications in this space. Everything up until that point had been very geeky, computer type stuff. So I did um, a master's in healthcare and design down at Imperial College, but half of it was Imperial College and the other half was in the Royal College of Art. And that gave me such a wonderful kind of working environment and study environment. Um, I was with a, an awful lot of different people from lots of different backgrounds, some technology people, a lot of clinicians, speech therapists, uh, paramedics, industrial designers, and coming together for two years on a part-time basis with those folks really kind of cemented my desire to, to work in, in service design. 
And if we fast forward a few years, here I am now landed at MazTech as their new head of digital service design. Thank you so much for introducing yourself. Really looking forward to getting stuck into this. I have some fluffy questions to start with. So could you tell us what your favourite piece of tech is and why? Oh, favourite piece of tech. So much to choose from. Um, it's probably on-demand TV. So... And, and that is probably because if you're as old as I am, um, you will remember a time before you could record TV and then, uh, and then video cassettes and then DVDs and then personal video recorders. And it was all a bit of a hassle and a pain. And then suddenly along comes on-demand streaming. And to be honest, it's just cut out all the hassle factor. And I think it's an amazing um, invention. That's my favorite piece of tech. Love that. I agree with you. I definitely enjoy on-demand services as well. And I, I do remember a time before recording TV slightly. I was really young, but I do just, just <laughs> yeah, remember. And it. it was such a pain, particularly when you cut off the recording before you get to the end of the programme, which happened to me all the time. And rewinding the tape as well to get back to the right piece. Yep, be kind, <laughs> rewind. I remember that. Yep. Please name an online service that has a great user experience. Right. So this is actually an online service, which I talk about quite a lot when I'm doing presentations. And I actually signed up for this service purely to experience the signing up process. And it's Monzo Bank. So I don't know if you've oh, got a Monzo Bank card. I, I absolutely <laughs> love the sign up process there, how you can effectively open a bank account in a matter of minutes. Contrast that to the old world in the legacy world where you might have to go to a branch, make an appointment to go to a branch, take loads of documentation with you, sit through a, length, a lengthy kind of interview process, and eventually you will get your account and days later you will get your, your card. But with Monzo, literally in a matter of, of minutes, you will get your sort code and your account number sent to you. And I know people that have um, done this while they've been queuing for a sandwich in Greg's and sorted out a new bank account. That is unheard of a few years ago. And I actually signed up for that purely to take screenshots of the whole process, to link it together, to study the user journey. I thought it was that good. And obviously now that Monzo's done it, and I, I guess I went through that process four or five years ago, everybody's doing it now. That is like the standard way to sign up for a service these days, including the NHS app, for example. Absolutely, which I use and I love. It's so helpful, so much easier to navigate than mm. having to call the GP and be on hold and discuss things with various people. It's kind of like a one-stop shop almost. Can you tell us something about your early career that would interest our audience? Um, when I left school after A-levels, I actually became a trainee quantity surveyor. And um, I guess that's a specialist accountant that basically just counts bricks all day. And what I couldn't believe was the fact that all this was done by hand. It was all scribbled down using a calculator on bits of paper. And I was getting day release at that point to go to college to study to become a chartered quantity surveyor. And I just realized that the bit that really interested in me was the automation and the computing and not counting bricks all day. So uh, I'm not that one on the head, moved out of a port cabin and moved into uh, full-time education. Fabulous. I would never have guessed. Interesting. Counting bricks. That sounds horribly boring. <laughs> it is horribly boring. And that, but that is what quantity surveying is. They've even got books to tell you there's a standard way of counting bricks, believe it or not. 
and holes wow. in the ground and how much soil you excavate and stuff. And it's all done for costing, you know, to cost up a building project. It was uh, <laughs> quite, quite the experience. Yeah, it sounds it. interesting. <laughs> yeah, that definitely answers my question. Okay, so on to the meaty bits. Could you explain a little bit more about the design thinking framework? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so simply put, it, it's basically a way to solve problems. Uh, it's a framework and it helps you to identify as well as solve problems, uh, particularly sort of ill-defined problems and, and gnarly problems. It's difficult to get your arms around, but it's more than just that. It's, um, it's kind of a philosophy as well, or a mindset that you need to get into as well as a, as well as a box of tools. But crucially, it puts humans at the center of the process. So it is actually a human-centered design approach. Um, it's been around since, I think, about the 1960s, but it actually grew traction in the 1990s when David Kelly founded a company, a design agency called IDEO. Uh, and then in 2005, he then established the D School at Stanford, and that's when it really became very popular as a, as a business technique. Um, so the great thing about design thinking is that it can be used in any field that involves humans and users. So, for example, you can use it to create a retail experience, uh, create a network of EV charging stations for electric cars, or even for creating government policy. Hmm. That's very, that's topical for what we're discussing today, definitely. Indeed, indeed. And it's, it's roughly split into five sort of main chunks or sections, which I'll, I'll briefly sort of talk you through. So the first bit is about empathy. You have got to have empathy with your users. So effectively, you need to walk in the shoes of your users to really, truly understand them. So one of the projects that I was involved in was in accident and emergency, um, where there was issues around um, log on times for computers. And I actually spent three weeks shadowing clinicians in accident and emergency to really live the life of those clinicians as much as I could um, and, and to get a good insight into what their work involved, their stresses, their pains, their pain points, etc. And then I uh, complemented that with a number of interviews with them. So once I kind of got the background knowledge, I could then sit down and have an informed conversation with them. And that was all about kind of building empathy and really starting to understand the environment with which, within which they work. The next stage is defined. So you take all that sort of knowledge, that understanding, your user research, the empathy, and you start to define the, the actual problem that you're trying to solve. So it, it, a key question that I will, a key phrase that I will keep using again and again and again, and I do in work is, what's the problem we're trying to solve here? What's the problem we're trying to solve? And that is the next stage. Can you crisply define what that problem is? Once you crisply defined it, you then move on to ideation. Now, ideation is just a fancy word for creating lots of ideas. And what we try to do at this stage is, unlike um, a lot of industries and a lot of approaches where you think of an idea, you think that'll work, we'll go out and start building it. You don't stop at the first idea. You generate loads and loads and loads of ideas. And we really encourage people not to fixate on the first viable solution. You know, we want them to, to think of, of lots of them because typically the first solution isn't the best solution. But the key thing is, is that ideas are cheap. You can generate lots and lots of ideas and build upon them. And it's a cheap way of, of optimizing the solution rather than further down the line after something's actually built. 
the problem is there's always a pressure to build you know stop thinking about this stuff stop creating ideas we actually want you to start developing this stuff so the next part of it is prototyping so what we do is we encourage people to prototype so don't just think and talk about these things actually build a prototype now that prototype could be in code but it could be a sketch, it could be a paper prototype, it could be a model, it could be a storyboard, but just get something down so you can actually communicate and share it with people. Which leads me on to the next section, which is about testing. The key thing here is that you want to get your ideas out and tested with real users mm-hmm. fast as you can and get feedback from there. So you can then test whether or not it's a goer or not, whether or not you need to iterate or completely pivot into, into another to another design space so that sounds like it's a really linear path from empathize define ideate prototype and test but it's not it's you bounce around all over the place in in that space it's not linear uh, at all there's actually i guess also a, a number of sort of key ingredients or attitudes that you need to have in order to successfully uh, run a design thinking um approach to programs I guess the first one we've talked about already, which is empathy, that is absolutely the root of design thinking. You've got to get inside the head of the users. But the other sort of ingredient is you need to go broad as well. So you need to go beyond the edges of the problems. Quite often we get a problem that is boxed off, but actually we need to go further than that. We need to understand the context of that problem. So service designers have almost got a license to go much, much wider than the brief that they're originally given which a lot of business people and project managers absolutely hate because they like to box us in, but but we need to go wide. We need to go wide. The other key ingredient in this is radical collaboration. We need to collaborate. So designers do not want to work in isolation. They need to work with stakeholders, but especially users. If you can design with a user, you end up with much, much better solutions. And I've got a great quote here from, it's the same A&E project that I worked on where we developed a solution in conjunction with the clinicians. So we actually had doctors and nurses with us co-designing the solution. And when we went through the evaluation stage, one of the quotes from a registrar was, you can tell that this was designed with clinicians because it actually does what clinicians want it to do. And it's particularly in healthcare, it's so rare that you get that sort of response. So that for me is is a real endorsement that, you know, if you design, if you co-design with the users, you end up with a much, much better product. Um, What else is there? Some some other elements of this is to build on ideas and not smash them. Okay. So uh, again, in in business, um, a lot of people like to play safe, but when we're doing design thinking, we want to think about big radical ideas and we don't want people to smash them down. We want people to build upon them because quite often these, what seem like ridiculous ideas, there's usually, there can quite often be a flicker of a really, really interesting solution in there, which if people build upon that, you get to a totally different place. So perhaps the initial idea might not have been viable, but building on that, you may end up with a, an extremely interesting and viable solution. So, you know, build on ideas, don't smash them. The other one is thinking by doing. So don't just think it in your head. Actually stop talking and start making something. Yeah, sketch, storyboard, model, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we talked about feedback and iterating. You need to get these prototypes out as fast as possible to get feedback and iterate. And the final bit is you've got to be brave 
and you've got to em embrace ambiguity. The design process is messy. It's difficult mm. and it's non-linear. So if you if you go out and Google the design squiggle, the design squiggle, that brings you up a fantastic graphic which neatly describes how messy the, uh, the design process is. But you've got to embrace that ambiguity and, and go with the process and hopefully you will pop out. And you usually do pop out at the end with some fantastic designs. Amazing. So why does the design thinking framework matter to Maztec? So, um, so Maztec's a, a digital transformation company and we have design thinking capability within Maztec and we've also got the technical expertise to deliver products. And we want to partner with government organisations to help them deliver successful transformations and services. And design thinking helps us to do that. And it does that because it gives us a great technique to understand the problem domain and to design the best solutions for our users and our clients. But crucially, and this is often overlooked, it actually reduces risk because it makes sure that we're actually solving the right problem and we're building the right products and service to solve that problem. And then just following on from that, what are your main takes on how government organizations currently adopt the design thinking framework? Okay, good question. So I guess within government departments, design thinking usually manifests itself as a service design, as, as a slightly different discipline. And that is really just the, um, the practical application of design thinking when you're creating services. So, um, I guess for the purpose of this podcast, I may jump between design thinking and service design. They're pretty much the same thing in the context of this. So I guess just to start with is to pay acknowledgement to GDS, Government Digital Service. They've done a fantastic job in highlighting the need and providing a framework and education in the space of service design and design thinking. They produce a service manual, the service standard, open standards, and the work that they've done is recognized across the world as has been leading in, in this space. And I've seen it adopted in other countries. So there's a fantastic solid foundation uh, for government departments uh, and indeed beyond. Um, I guess my, my key take on this is that there's, there's two elements uh, around the maturity of using design thinking and service design. Uh, one is around sort of capability and one's around the acceptance of the environment in which to practice service design. Uh, and th this can actually, the, the level of maturity can actually vary within an individual government organization as well, you know, directorate by directorate. So I'll just pick the first one out, um, which is capability. So I guess in my eyes, capability is being able to practice service design by having the right uh, skills, the right resources there. So user researchers, service designs that are appropriately skilled up. And that capability does vary. We've got some fantastic expert UCD teams uh, across government. Some of them are still learning and need coaching, and some are, are kind of just starting out. But actually, to a certain extent, all that gets eclipsed by my second point here, which is about acceptance and permission to actually undertake this work. So even those organizations that have got great capability in that area, they often not given the remit or the runway to, to actually fly with this uh, method or framework. And typically how this plays out is that delivery teams start building before they've even got their hands around the problem, never mind creating the design. So designers are constantly playing catch up and design is there kind of as a bit of an add on. 
So you can imagine that, um, you know, um, delivery teams turn up, you've got a whole batch of, of, of developers, they're rolling their sleeves up and, and, they're, and they're ready to start developing. And they turn around to the design team and say, uh, so what are we doing? And if these folks start at the same time, then it ends up where the development teams are just guessing to a certain extent in terms of what they're developing. So there needs to be appropriate runway and appropriate time to actually do the, the design thinking up front before we land these. And that's not always possible. Now, the second way that this kind of plays out is that, and I've seen this quite a lot of times, unfortunately, is that the design teams almost work in a separate parallel universe. So they're doing all this great research, discovery, empathy, producing great designs, but their outputs are never used. And it actually becomes a bit of a box ticking exercise uh, a lot of the time to get through what we call GDS assessment. So the biggest thing or, or the biggest thing that we can improve, I think, is, is as an education piece of giving permission to use these tried and trusted techniques that have been developed by GDS and just allow those to actually uh, be delivered and, and use those within, within projects. Absolutely. So how can government organisations implement the design thinking framework to improve their service delivery and what are the benefits of doing so? So I guess, I guess from my perspective, there are the two, two key areas to think about. Um, as I've sort of mentioned before, I'm going to mention it again because it's so important. The crux of the challenge is to spend the right amount of time to understand the problem domain and then ideate possible solutions, you know, build, test, iterate, fail fast, pivot. And having the expert resource to do this now typically government organizations like to partner up with tech companies such as mass tech to deliver solutions and they tend to wrap the discovery and the delivery into a single tender which is not ideal why is it not ideal well how these tend to pad out is that there's very little time for proper discovery and neither can they actually tender that well because they don't have a solid understanding of the problem domain so rather than having a big single tender document that comes out covering understand the problem, design, and then deliver the solution, there's actually an embryonic trend now of issuing separate discovery and alpha tenders. And this is perfect. I want to encourage this more and more. So because it actually decouples the delivery from the discovery and the design. And I think that helps everybody, it allows us designers and UCD people to get our arms around the problem to truly understand. And it also then helps uh, government organizations to absorb that information and then put an appropriate tender out to actually then deliver the, an appropriate solution rather than trying to bu bundle it all up in one. So that, that's, I guess, my, my first kind of view there. The second one is we've got to be really careful about what success looks like and how we should measure it. So success factors really does set the direction and the and the, the direction of travel and the focus for projects and this should flow from having a deep understanding of the problem and user needs uh, and that should enable you to sort of define the right measures of success but but beware <laughs> beware beware um quite often politics can sometimes meddle with this um Recently on Radio 4, I was listening to a podcast uh, which featured Chion Wara. Um, she's the Shadow Minister for Science, Research and Innovation. And she was talking about her time in private sector, 
where success was measured in things like how many users are on a service, the, um, uh, the satisfaction scores that were um, coming back. But then she said she was quite shocked when she moved into government and that success factors were often couched in terms like it's a success if it's not mentioned or critiqued in parliament which is quite a radical shift from perhaps how you would do it in the commercial world. And it's certainly not user-centered. So I think, I think you know, one has got to be really careful about the success factors that are defined and also which are kind of undefined, uh, the, the ones that are not spoken about, because that will massively influence the trajectory of, um, of travel. So again, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a, another sort of example of a project that I worked on. It's the same Amy ones for consistency throughout this podcast. So when we were in A&E, the problem was initially cited as slow log-on time. So clinicians were getting really frustrated about the amount of time it's taking them to log on to workstations. So we could have easily defined success uh, as we need it to be faster to log on. So it's currently X, it needs to be Y, and that will be success. But actually, when we did our research and we spent all that time in A&E, we started digging deeper in the discovery. And what we found was some more fundamental issues that we had to deal with. So log on time was actually just a symptom. It wasn't an underlying cause. Now, the actual measure of success that they really wanted was improved patient flow. And that's the speed at which people come into A&E and either get discharged or admitted and also improved efficient, uh, improved clinician efficiency because they were spending a lot of time doing a lot of things which was making them inefficient. Now, that is a totally different success factor than speed up log on times. And we only got there by digging deep into the problem space and taking a more holistic view. And then, and then we defined a totally different success factor. And as you can imagine, the outcome of that project was radically different because we did the appropriate research. So again, the great thing about design thinking is it helps you to identify the right problem to solve and to solve it in the right way. And that is the benefit and the advantage of, of design thinking. Amazing. Thank you. So there's definitely a lot of benefit in making sure that teams are not siloed and that everybody looks at things holistically. Absolutely. Right. So as much as design thinking is actually a framework, it's also a mindset and a culture. So it actually takes a bit of time to sort of build that up. And for some teams and departments, this is going to be a totally different way of thinking uh, about things. So I guess if I was going to choose um, two or three things, um, start small. I think that's probably the, the best advice that I've been given and uh, right at the start of my design thinking journey. Start small. So take one problem or one project and use a design thinking approach for it. It allows you to build your confidence, your credibility and to demonstrate that it actually works. And then that gets the buy in. Second point, I guess, um, the process is deceptively simple, but really, really difficult to execute well. So you need to sort of be careful how you build your team provide training and, and coaching and, you know, potentially perhaps partner up with an organization like Maztec who can help you and, and coach you in this, in this particular area. But yeah, basically you will need some, some base practitioner skills in, in that space. So either grow them yourself or augment them with a, a third party. And I think the last thing is, and people are still doing this now, they fall into the trap of thinking that design thinking is the only tool in the toolbox. 
right? So you don't use it in every in every scenario. It, it's really w- once you become a practitioner, you kind of think, oh, I'll use it to solve this problem and that problem and that problem. And whilst it's really versatile, problems that are really well understood and can be addressed with a targeted solution, for example, if you wanted to, I don't know, um, increase the efficiency of a jet engine, right? Design thinking is not going to help you do that at all, you know, because it doesn't benefit from involving the user. Your average user is not going to be able to help you uh, improve the efficiency of of a jet engine. Um, So I think using design thinking inappropriately or as a blanket philosophy really undermines its efficacy. So really focusing on those problems that are are user focused and where you you can genuinely see that the users are going to add value in, in what you create together. Brilliant, thank you so much. And then lastly, if we move on to the Government Transformation Summit, which is this September. So I'm just curious to find out what you're excited to hear and learn from our civil service community. Yeah, well, excited is the word. I am really excited and really privileged to be spending some time with these civil servants. Uh, they're at the heart of digital transformation. Um, so I wanna share um, my passion for design thinking and how it can be used to effectively solve problems mm-hmm. and some pretty gnarly problems at that. Uh, I think we need to explore this space around uh, permission or willingness to allow projects to properly utilize or be guided by design thinking. So one of the most insightful quotes I heard recently was from the service design legend, who is uh, Lou Down, who said that service design is actually 10% design and 90% convincing people that what you're trying to do is a good idea. So my take on that is that a big chunk of of service design is actually about creating the right environment for service design and design thinking to succeed. Uh, Other areas that I'd like to explore would be uh, about having time to do design thinking. So it very much uh, is associated with the previous uh, point there. You know, time to do design thinking and ideally have separate discovery and alpha tenders to allow that to happen. And I think the final thing is the idea that defining success factors is so, so, so critical to the trajectory and the outcome of a program, and that we probably need to spend more time and effort in this particular space. You know, let's define what actual success should look like, rather than kind of skipping that stage of the process, and then three quarters of the way through a program, we're still kind of scratching our heads trying to work out what success actually looks like. So I think those are the main areas that I'd like to get into conversation about. So I'm also really interested in hearing and learning from the attendees at the the GovEx uh, conference. So for me, it's a great personal opportunity to talk to civil servants that are at the heart of digital transformation. Uh, And what I want to learn is is about their experiences of digital transformation, whether or not they've uh, adopted design thinking and service design, what issues and successes they've had with it. And I guess, you know, do any of the topics that we've talked about in this podcast actually resonate with them? Um, and I guess the final thing is that, you know, as a trusted partner, how, how can Maztec help produce better program outcomes and better services for our users? I'll be looking forward to hearing a little bit more about that as I pass the roundtables myself. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the Government Transformation Show. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's all from us today. Thanks again. Bye. 
Thanks again to Paul for joining me for this episode. We had a great conversation there around approaching user-centric design and using design thinking as a way of identifying the key problems that need to be addressed, how to implement solutions and the value of taking this approach overall. As I mentioned, Paul will join us at this year's Government Transformation Summit on the 22nd of September at Church House in Westminster and co-host a discussion on using design thinking for successful digital transformation. The summit is a fantastic opportunity for senior civil service leaders to meet and workshop solutions to some of the biggest challenges facing public centre organisations today. If you'd like to attend the summit, please register with the link under this episode. Join us next time where we'll be sitting with another public sector change maker. Until then, goodbye.